Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Thus for the text. Dear friends in Christ, you'd recognize a king if you saw one, right? I mean, like, if there was a parade in downtown Aurora this week and you knew that royalty was going to be present somewhere within that processional, if you were in the crowd, you'd be able to point out which person was the king, wouldn't you? I mean, I, if, if, let's say that, like, if Elvis Presley appeared in the narthex right now and he walked right down here, right toward me, and you know he could do it because he's still living somewhere in Mississippi, right? You know that, right? I mean, if Elvis Presley came right down the center aisle, you wouldn't say to yourself, wow, there's some weirdo walking up toward Pastor Chris. You'd point be able to say, well, there's the king of rock and roll. He's coming down right down this aisle. You'd recognize a king if you saw one, wouldn't you? Of course you would, right? And after all, they'd be decked out in royal regalia, right? They'd have the long purple robe. They'd be attended by all their courtesans who would be around them, all their dukes and earls who would be attending their every need. They would have that, that scepter that would have all those jewels in their hands, right? They would walk with a certain dignity because of their royalty. And of course, there'd be that glorious bejeweled crown made of precious metals, maybe a purple or a, a red precious um, cloth material around it as well. Their subjects would all be around them. They'd be serving their every women, every need. Why? Because they were king. And they would display their glory. You'd recognize a king if you saw one. And so it was Passover week in Jerusalem. And Jewish people from around the known world had gathered and packed into the city. They had come to remember. They had come to remember those great acts of salvation that their Lord God had done for them. And it was for them because had God not done it for their ancestors, then they would still be, well, they'd still be slaves in Egypt. You see, they would remember that week what Yahweh had done, how he had sent those plagues building in their intensity one after another to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go from slavery, not only slavery, but they would remember that it was a time and culture of death as well as Pharaoh would seek to cull the herd of the Israelites by killing their firstborn sons. And so, of course, then, God, in choosing how the order of the plagues would come, there'd be that final one, that final one, the death of the firstborn son of everyone and everything in Egypt, which would be then the culmination of an act of God's deliverance. Every firstborn son would die except for the Israelites. Death would not come to their households. Why? Yahweh would give them now a meal, a lamb, 
perfect, without blemish. They were to kill, they were, they were to eat, they were to take the blood of the lamb and put it upon their doorpost, a sign that God's angel would not enter that home, death would not touch them, but rather instead he would pass over. And it would mark God's protection and deliverance. And now they would remember, not, not the way that you and I remember, like I remember where I lost my car keys. No, instead, this remembrance went this way. As they would celebrate that meal now and remember what Yahweh had done through the death of the firstborn son, through the sacrifice of the perfect lamb, through the blood of the lamb, they would remember, meaning that the benefit that God had performed for those children of Israel in Egypt now moved forward in time and claimed that generation. Now they received the benefit, a rescue from death, a rescue from slavery. And at that time, the children of Israel, now on the way to the promised land, now the children of Israel would say, we've been in the promised land for all this time. A sign of God's fulfilling faithfulness. The Israelites had packed Jerusalem that year to celebrate. And now, now there was exciting news, a report of resurrection, a report of an actual recent rescue from the dead. Those people that were coming out from Bethany, they had been there, they had witnessed it, they knew. They had been there when the crowd had gathered to mourn that dear friend, that patron of the town, Lazarus, dead for four days, the stone over him. There was no way that it could have been a coma, no way that they could have made a mistake. Why, certainly his body would begin to reek from death after four days, and yet now that prophet from Nazareth had come. He had spoken a word and called him from the tomb. He was alive again. Lazarus was coming to celebrate the Passover. Certainly the crowd's going to come out and check this out, but even more so, the prophet that called him from the dead, the prophet that raised him to life, this prophet Jesus from Nazareth, he was coming as well. And the excitement and the hope that hung in the air and it seems that the crowd, they recognize a king when they see one coming, don't they? And they do, right? They cut the palm branches down. They've got them in their hand. Palm branches, that sign of victory in a celebration in Jesus' day. They didn't have pennants and banners to wave. They waved the palm branches. And the joyful shouts as that crowd streams out to greet the crowd that is coming in from Bethany with Jesus. And they sing and they shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. That word literally meaning, Lord, save. Save now. Oh, most of the crowd probably just used it as a greeting or as a, a joyful shout. Kind of like we would use goodbye and, and not really think about what that term used to mean, God be with us, you know, be with you. They're probably just shouting it as a shout of joy. But notice, they even identify Jesus, don't they? Blessed is the coming one, the anointed one, the Messiah, in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They recognize the King coming when they see it. And 
And, and, and yet, and yet something's not quite right. You see, the disciples, Jesus' closest followers, they don't understand something. There seems to be a, a something amiss in the imagery. Because you see, this king who's coming into Jerusalem is coming in not with a scepter, not with a crown, not looking regal or royal or anything. He's coming on a donkey. Now, now to be sure, even as we heard in Zechariah today, to be sure, the image of this king riding in on a donkey, that's a Davidic image. That's an image of God's chosen king. Make no mistakes, that's true. But notice, it doesn't really reflect the glory that the world would be expecting, right? I mean, a donkey, I mean, that's a, that's a humble beast. That's a beast of burden. And that's what this king is riding. And it creates some tension for his disciples. They don't understand Notice how John writes about it. He says his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And it begs the question, when was Jesus glorified? Now, now notice that our minds might quickly and immediately jump to, well, well of course, that must that must be the, the resurrection at Easter. Maybe, maybe his ascension, you know, days later. Maybe, maybe it's even the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But notice how Jesus speaks of his glory in that same chapter that we read this morning from John 12. You see, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem amidst all of the hoopla, now even some Gentiles, some Greeks say, we would see Jesus. Now it's not only Israelites, now it's Gentiles as well. And notice how Jesus responds. It's not dismissive of what the Greeks request, but it gets to the heart of the matter. Jesus said, as Philip and Andrew tell him that Greeks want to see him, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. A few verses later, he will say, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see, the glory of this king will look anything but glorious to the world. The world would expect a king to display his glory through his armies that march in battle formation in front of him. They would expect to see the display of the glory through his glorious dress, through the jewels that are on his head, the scepter in his hand. They would expect displays of glory that would communicate power, that would communicate what the world sees as victory. But this king this week This king won't look like that at all. He won't curry favor with the powerful, but instead will clear the temple, decrying how it had become a den of robbers and reminding his own people that it was to be his father's house of prayer for all nations. 
He will not be the one that, that will court carefully worded answers so that he might avoid some trouble, but will speak the truth even when they seek to entrap him. And the tension of not looking like a king will build until we'll come to a judgment hall later this week. And there will be two men in the hall. One will look exactly like a king. He will. He'll be robed in all of the trappings of power. He'll look like someone with authority and rule because he exercised the rule of Rome. You see, he'll look kind of like a king, but he won't be one at all. And the other man who is the king will barely look human. All of the trappings of royalty will be there with him, but they will have been given in mockery. He'll wear a purple robe, but it will be there in jest from soldiers. And he'll be caked in blood as it holds together the ribbons of flesh from his back after a scourging. He might still have the reed in his hand, a scepter of mockery that was used to strike him in the face and the head time and again. And he'll wear a crown. But as you know, it'll be one that digs into his flesh, made of thorns. You see, he won't look like a king of glory, but he is. And the other man who will look more like he's in charge and under authority, he'll lead him out of that hall, out into the courtyard. And when he says, behold your king, the crowd then will chant, away with him, away with him, crucify him. You see, they won't recognize that he's a king. He doesn't look like one. But that image, that image from from the humble entry on a beast of burden on this Sunday that will culminate in that judgment hall where he will look like a broken and beaten and humbled man. That is the image that he's come to bear. That is his royal glory. Why? Because this is the way that he provides now salvation. It's the way that he provides a rescue. You see, it's the perfect lamb of God, the firstborn son of God, who now allows death to pass over his subjects. And he brings salvation and a validation of the sign he had given just a little over a week before. You see, just a little over a week before, he stood outside that tomb of Lazarus in Bethany, and he called him forth alive from the grave, showing that he had the authority, the power over death itself. But let's be honest with one another. If it was only power over temporal death, what difference would it make? So what if Lazarus gets to live another two, five, ten? Let's go crazy today and say he lived another 25 years. If he still just died again, and death was the final claim on him, 
then that miracle would seem paltry at best. But this king has authority over sin, over our enemies, Satan, over our death eternal. And he provides what is needed, the perfect sacrifice, that there might be that victory for his subjects. You know, it's, it's, it's a hope-filled irony what those Israelite, what those leaders of Israel sneer at the end of the processional reading today, isn't it? I notice what the Pharisees say as they witness what's going on and that king is coming into Jerusalem. They say this. I've got to get it. There we go. They say this. They say, you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. Oh, that the world would go after this king. Oh, that the world would draw near. And some will. Some will gather into halls like this. Your friends and neighbors, they'll know that you're coming here this week. And may by the Spirit's work they draw near. Draw near because they witness you. And you recognize a king when he comes near, don't you? You recognize a king when you see one. You recognize that king that draws near in his word that is spoken and the sin that is in your life is wiped clean and the gift of life itself is given to you. You recognize when that king comes near in his word, don't you? You recognize that king when he'll draw near to this altar and give to you his very body and blood that was sacrificed on that cross for your salvation, that was risen again for the hope of life everlasting, that he puts right into your mouth. You recognize when your king draws near and gives you that victory. You recognize that king that speaks that word of, of absolution and you walk out then alive and alive, eternal, knowing that the firstborn son of God was sacrificed for you, that perfect lamb that his blood covers you, you recognize when this king gives you his victory. You see, that's what gathers us this week. Our king draws near, and he draws near to do that thing that that first crowd, when they recognized him, asked for, even if they didn't recognize it. Lord, save! And this king comes near this week and gives you and me salvation for us, for the world. And as the world draws near, may they hear our joyful witness of what this king has done because he draws near this week and brings salvation into this hall. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all human understanding, keep our hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.